Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. It's Richard Lummis, I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices, and we try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today's discussion is part of our series on presidents of the United States. The next few episodes, we'll be discussing presidents who have pretty much been forgotten. Rutherford B. Hayes, our 19th president, who served 1877 to 1881, is a case in point. He was born 1822 in Delaware, Ohio. His father had been a storekeeper in Vermont before moving to Ohio. And he died 10 weeks before Rutherford was born, leaving him to be raised by his mother. He attended common schools in Ohio, then went to a Methodist seminary for a year. After another year in a preparatory school in Connecticut, he went to Kenyon College in Ohio. He graduated in 1842 as a valedictorian and briefly read law in Ohio before going to Harvard Law School. He graduated from there in 1845 and began practicing law in Sandusky, Ohio. He moved to Cincinnati, where he met and married Lucy Webb, who was a Methodist teetotaler and abolitionist. He became prominent mainly as a criminal defense attorney, defending slaves who'd escaped to Ohio and were accused under the Fugitive Slave Act. His first elected political office was a solicitor of the city of Cincinnati, and he was elected in 1859 and then lost the election in 1861 when Cincinnati turned against the Republicans in favor of Democrats and know-nothings. He joined the 23rd Regiment of Ohio Volunteer Infantry and was promoted to major. He later referred to the Civil War as his golden years. He was wounded four times, had numerous horses shot out from under him, and ended the war as a brevet major general. While he was serving in the Army, he was elected to Congress in 1864. In Congress, he supported the 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and the Reconstruction Acts. Although he was re-elected to Congress in 1866, he resigned in 1867 to run for governor of Ohio. He narrowly won and was re-elected in 1869. He chose not to run in 1872, but following financial reverses from the Panic of 1873, he ran again in 1875 and became the first three-term governor of Ohio. He's nominated for president in 1876 by the Republicans as a compromise candidate, and the election was one of the most contentious in American history. I think that's a good point for us to start our discussion, Tom, with that, uh, with that election. You know, that uh, was a great summary, Richard, and I really enjoyed researching the presidents that we're going to, uh, to talk about over the next few uh, podcasts. And uh, there were a few themes that I'd like to really throw out at the start of this one that uh, perhaps we can reflect on throughout um, these, these series of presidents. Uh, the first one is that I guess I'd, if I had known this, I'd certainly forgotten it, but there's nothing new in American politics. And uh, as bad as you think things may be at any one point in time, uh, we were both obviously alive when um, federal troops were uh, actually sandbagged around the Capitol um, that was a pretty contentious time, but the uh, disputed election of 1876 and indeed the Compromise of 1876 may have been one of, uh, except for the Civil War, one of the um, greatest um, uh, 
potential powder kegs in American history, um, at least in electoral politics. The um, the situation was that uh, the uh, candidate, Mr. Tilden, he had uh, won by, or at least was ahead by, 19 electoral votes. Uh, there were three states whose votes were in dispute, uh, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. The Republicans claimed that uh, those states had been won by Republicans. Uh, uh, Oregon at that time, which was a state, had three electors, and one of their electors was disqualified. So the three electors that had been um, selected for Hayes uh, of the three from Oregon, uh, one had to withdraw. So he needed 20 votes, and he had to win all 20 votes from the disputed election. Uh, There was really no apparent compromise that could be made. It was either going to be Tilden or or, um, Hayes. And uh, Congress um, decided that an electoral commission would be appointed. Decided to punt. A uh, punt. <laughs> like I said, nothing new. Uh, and they appointed a committee. And the committee was to be seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and one nonpartisan. And in the Democrat, uh, the Democrats, in a, in a brilliant tactical move that completely backfired on them, Appointed one of uh, the appointed rather the uh, the independent to uh, a seat, a Democratic seat uh, in the Senate, thinking this would influence him. It did. He promptly resigned from the commission, <laughs> and, and so his replacement was a Republican, giving the Republicans uh, eight a majority of eight to seven. And uh, not surprisingly, they um, they uh, their votes uh, uh, took or uh, held firm, and the Electoral Commission awarded the election to Ruth B. Hayes. But that really doesn't tell the story, I don't think, which is the compromise that occurred. And literally, it was worked out, I believe, the weekend before the uh, inauguration, if not the day before the inauguration, I think in the um, Hay House, perhaps? Yeah, the uh, the election was decided, what, two days before the right. before inauguration day. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Inauguration day fell on a, uh, the date for inauguration fell on a Sunday, and they, uh, they were not going to have a, a public ceremony on a Sunday. So that was scheduled for Monday, but uh, just to make sure uh, nothing had transpired between Saturday and Monday, he was sworn in privately in the White House, Hayes was. But the, um, the Compromise of 1876, I think, was uh, necessary for healing of the United States. I recognize that um, that it led to, or at least um, ended, the robust nature of uh, Reconstruction, the robust nature of federal intervention in elections in the South, and the protection of civil rights. But at some point, the country was either going to have to come back together in some way. Um, Reconstruction could have lasted 50 years if, uh, if the former radical Republicans uh, wanted to have, uh, have the South totally reconstructed. And uh, as I recall, the compromise uh, allowed Hayes to be elected president. It uh, ended uh, informally Reconstruction, which Hayes then did formally end. It ended the robust nature of the federal election uh, protections for minorities. Uh, The other thing that I recall from my university days was there was a series of other uh, parts to the uh, compromise which really integrated true 
Southerners and even unreconstructed Southerners back into the federal government. So, for instance, uh, a, a judicial appointment to the Supreme Court was promised uh, to be a Southerner, and that uh, they would uh, engage, the federal government would engage in uh, more road building and bridge building, infrastructure improvement, I guess we would call it today, in the South. Very little money had been spent on the South uh, during Reconstruction. So it was really an attempt to um, to bring the country back together. And a, and a Southerner would be appointed to the cabinet. And the cabinet, yes. And a Southerner was appointed to the cabinet. So uh, uh, it truly was a compromise. The South did get, I think they basically won. They got what <laughs> they wanted. Uh, you know, we won, as we say. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think it was important uh, for uh, the the country, but I, I did want to, you know, see if you had a different view on it. Was the compromise necessary, or were even of the the components of it? Did you think it went too far? I, yeah, I do have a slightly different view. But uh, first, I'd like to point out how incredibly engaged the electorate was during this period. Um, this election, eighty two point six percent of the eligible voters turned out and voted, and of that, Tilden won the popular vote by. 250,000, which was almost a 3% margin. Um, so it's quite striking that um, when he lost the election, there wasn't as much carping as there has been um, about, about Donald Trump's election in particular. Um, but as for Reconstruction, one of the things that struck me was that the, the governments of, of Louisiana and South Carolina in particular really were dependent on federal uh, military support to exist. Um, they were utterly unreconstructed in, in psychological terms. And the end of that, um, Jim Crow really didn't get strong for another oh, 15, 20 years, but it really uh, paved the way for Jim Crow. And I think it was, I don't think there's a good way out of it after a civil war. Um, this was probably as good a way as any. It was peaceful and, uh, but it certainly had the effect of disenfranchising blacks in the Deep South for many years. And that's a pretty high price. Yeah, and that really kind of leads to the first general topic of uh, Hayes' presidency around leadership that I wanted to explore with you, and it is exactly that, the end of Reconstruction. Uh, was, it, it, was it inevitable? Um, just looking at the, the cost to maintain federal troops in the South, both the financial cost, the resource cost, but also the psychological cost. One, to be a, um, uh, a country or a part of a country uh, that is still boarding troops in, in a conquered part of the country. And uh, the second part was, was there ever going to be any reconciliation, a true reconciliation, um, without political equality and without uh, simply the, the troops being moved. And I, I had not really focused on the cost as much until I prepared for this episode. Um, the financial cost, the resource cost, and uh, really the cost uh, to the north of the psychological cost of having uh, to, to have sons and, and husbands and, and brothers uh, literally in the, in the South uh, for years on end. Reconstruction at this point had been... Uh, so that's 11 years. Well, and there's still widespread sentiment in the United States at this time period against a standing army of any kind, really. Right. Um, and instead, you not only had a standing army, it was an occupation army of, of part of your country. Um, so it was, it was divisive. So um, the, uh, 
there had been a suppression of the Klan somewhat, um, and with uh, other uh, appropriations, uh, it's something called the Enforcement Act, the uh, federal government was able to provide some protection and some civil rights, protection of civil rights. All of those ended, and uh, unfortunately, you know, we obviously paid the price for that as a country. Uh, some would say to the Civil Rights Act, some would say we're still paying that price today, but um, I think your analysis is, is correct. There was no good way out of this, and I don't know what, uh, if, we, if we'd had Reconstruction for another 50 years and the South had been occupied, um, if they'd broken up the largest states, if they'd uh, uh, gone back to the, uh, the levelers and diggers from English, English history, would that have made a difference? Um, I don't know. It would be a much different country, though. It certainly would, and I, and I don't think it would be a united one. But um, whatever Hayes' role in there, and, and I guess where I come down on leadership is that he took really the either the, the best of the worst decisions or kind of the least worst decision that he could have made. But once again, we have to acknowledge that uh, it did disenfranchise the African-American community throughout the South for multiple generations. Yeah. Well, you know, one of his mottos was he serves his party best who serves his country best. And I think that kind of summed up his presidency. So aside from the issue of the compromise and how he became president in the first place, what did you think of his behavior once he was president? So um, we both were uh, aware of the Credit Mobilier scandal, and uh, we talked about that in uh, our podcast about President Grant. Uh, what I had not really understood or fully appreciated was how ingrained and endemic corruption was in not simply the political process, but in the political spoils. And in both I, parties. In both parties, absolutely correct. And uh, I remember th- being taught that civil service reform was this, this you know, enlightenment intellectual light bulb that went off in the collective head of America, and they just said, well, we're going to have a professional governmental service. And so we did. Well, it wasn't quite true. Quite that clean. Not quite that clean. And civil service reform was a huge issue, and it was a huge problem. And um, probably during the war, um, it, it was not um, as important as winning the war was. Certainly the presidency of Andrew Johnson uh, was not one of the premier or top issues. But after uh, the conclusion of the Civil War, and uh, the Grant presidency, I think corruption really uh, became a very important issue. And here, uh, I think we have to credit Hayes' leadership. He aggressively uh, attempted civil service reforms. He uh, appointed people to his cabinet who uh, were based, uh, the selections were based on merit, which amazingly enough was uh, considered uh, an innovation uh, at that point, not just a political payoff. Uh, We're gonna talk about at length with Chester Arthur the uh, Port of New York, because um, that turned out to be actually uh, one of the most corrupt um, appointments. Not That's not right. Corrupt offices uh, in the United States. The appointment, I don't think we could say, was corrupt. Um, but the all state appointments are within a state were controlled by the senior senator of that state. And um, Senator Conkling from um, New York uh, placed uh, Chester A. Arthur, who later became president, uh, in the role as uh, commissioner of the Port of New York. I was actually stunned to read that his salary exceeded over eight hundred thousand uh, dollars in today's money uh, from, from the overages he received. 
Uh, well, that actually wasn't all salary. Some of that was percentage cut. Yeah, yeah. The fines levied. No, no, that's what I meant, that it yeah. was actually, his salary, I think, was 35000 of that. So uh, it was uh, really interesting. Uh, but civil service reform, uh, Hayes went after that. He also, the post office, uh, amazingly enough, uh, 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 an organ that we may not, we've, we certainly don't think of corruption around the post office, but it was apparently as corrupt. And so he went after the Port of New York quite aggressively. He wasn't as successful as uh, he wanted to be. Um, and this was the first uh, place I had seen the name of Theodore Roosevelt in a political tract was around uh, this issue. And so civil service reforms, I have to give Hayes high credit for leadership on this. And your quotation of his phrase, he who serves his party best serves his country best, is absolutely correct. And Hayes really believed that uh, going forward. Yeah, the um, I think that was Theodore's father was was involved in that too. There was a couple of other uh, areas from his uh, presidency that I wanted to highlight. Uh, we didn't have uh, we're going to an era that would seem to be more focused on domestic politics, but we had a couple of foreign policy uh, issues that I thought Hayes was uh, quite innovative and in leader leadership uh, qualities uh, shown. The first was. He brokered a settlement in the Paraguayan War uh, in uh, a brutal war that happened in South America that not too many people, or at least Americans, I think, are very familiar with. Um, Second, uh, he uh, diffused a border crisis with Mexico. There had been ongoing raids literally across the border. The the Texicans and our forefathers were still being harassed by Mexican banditos and perhaps we probably were giving out uh, as good as they got when they uh, went across the border to look for lost cattle. So um, uh, the border crisis continued, and uh, President Hayes was able to uh, defuse that crisis by working out um, foreign policy agreements directly with the Mexican government. And then uh, immigration. And uh, I guess this is kind of another aha moment that, once again, I should have realized um, uh, nothing is new in American politics. And uh, the immigration, we may be a immig- nation of immigrants, but the immigration issue has been with us uh, literally uh, since the start of the, re- the Republic. And in the 1830s to 1850s, it was Irish in New York and Boston. And after the Civil War, it was Chinese. And I was shocked to, to read that the U.S. passed a law that actually would have prevented Chinese immigration until, I think, eight, 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would have been 60 years of uh, immigration ban. Um, the um, immigration issues uh, bubbled up, um, whether they were based on race, whether it was based on economics, uh, it was a, a variety of issues. Um, Chinese are, are well known for having contributed to the building of the Transcontinental Railroad and in San Francisco and in the West Coast. And there were very, very significant and, and severe uh, issues around that at that time. Yeah, the... Um there were riots in San Francisco and, and other places in California. Um, and they, they're, as, as usual, the immigrants were accused of depressing the wages of Native American workers, which sounds depressingly familiar. <laughs> but, uh, but there you have it. Uh, there was even a third party uh, called the Working Man's Party that formed, and their sole, uh, sole platform plank was suppression of Chinese immigration. So it was that kind of issue at the time. Hayes actually vetoed the uh, 
the Chinese Exclusion Act. It, it subsequently passed and was signed by Arthur, but uh, um, the, the reason he vetoed it was not that he disagreed with it, it was that it uh, violated the treaty that was in place with China at the time. The, um, a couple of other things bubbled up for me, Richard. The first was the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. This turned out to be, uh, I thought, a, a fairly short affair, although incredibly violent. Uh, basically, two weeks in July of 1877, railroad men kind of across the Midwest, I would say from Chicago down to St. Louis, uh, rioted. Uh, first of all, um, struck their employers, then rioted. Uh, Hayes called out federal troops to suppress the riots. Uh, at this point, there were no casualties between the strikers and the federal troops, although there were significant stri- uh, casualties between uh, strikers and state militia. Hayes was uneasy uh, about this for two reasons. One, he didn't, he wasn't sure that uh, he had the authority to call out federal troops uh, to protect a largely private enterprise, and then he he was really uh, concerned about the the real reason for the strikes. And uh, I thought it was very prescient that he said the strikes have been put down by force, but now for the real remedy, can't something be done by education of strikers, by judicious control of capitalists, by wise general policy to end or diminish the evil? The railroad strikers, as a rule, are good men, sober, intelligent, and industrious. And it really spoke to, I think, a a level of understanding that there are a lot more economic issues here that need to be uh, not only unpacked, but uh, everyone is going to have to work on a compromise here to to try to move forward. And unfortunately, this presaged some um, very dramatic strikes uh, up and through the Gilded Age. Yeah, and um, up until the Pullman strike, which we'll be discussing later. But uh, I, I did think it was interesting that, you know, the, the role of the state militia at the time was, was still quite strong. Um, they opened fire on the strikers in several cases. Um, but in general, I think the public correctly blamed the railroads for their treatment of workers as making the strike all but inevitable. Um, and it was one of the, the railroads were one of the first times, I think, that we saw this amalgamation of corporate power that we we're again seeing. <laughs> Once again, nothing new. <laughs> did but, something uh, change or did yeah. I wake up? Yeah, but uh, so, so it is, it's an interesting time. So maybe I, I could uh, conclude with uh, three general thoughts and maybe get your thoughts on them as well, Richard. Obviously, we talked about the, the motto, he who serves his party best, serves his country best. Uh, but there were a couple of other things that struck me about uh, Hayes. One was his uh, really non-judicious use of the veto. One might even say ruthless use. He, he was not afraid to veto laws, and he was not afraid to veto laws that became where his veto was overridden. So he, uh, and perhaps this surprised me as much as anything, was his use of or reclaiming of executive power. Mm-hmm. And when I thought about it in terms of the arc of history, from uh, I can remember uh, as a teenager, my father uh, telling me that the radical Republicans, r- what they really wanted to do was move us from a republic to a parliamentary form of government. And I'm not sure I really uh, ever bought into that in any way, but the uh, legislative branch did seem to take a large measure of control, uh, if not during the Civil War, after Lincoln died, during the Johnson presidency, uh, during the Grant presidency. And uh, Hayes was really the first president to try to move for move more power 
power back towards the executive. Part of that was through the use of his veto. I thought he used the bully pulpit quite well. Um, and uh, I thought uh, he really moved to protect the presidency as an institution. And then finally, the last thing, and we've touched upon this, I think it was with James Monroe, was the first president that actually did a tour of the United States. But um, Hayes took a 71-day tour of uh, the American West. He was not the first president to go. Uh, I was surprised to find Grant had gone to Utah uh, in 1875. I'd somehow forgotten that. But um, And his nickname was uh, uh, Hayes the Rover, or Ruth for the Rover. And uh, I think it's important. Uh, that's an issue that we have talked about in terms of leadership is you've got to get out of the corporate headquarters. You've got to get out of the ivory tower. And for a president to actually travel and meet people, um, I think is it's always uh, important to do. And particularly in that age uh, where travel is much more difficult now uh, than it is now, um, it was a significant effort to get out and get to the West. And he did that. And I think that that should be noted. And that's a leadership skill that we sh- we can still learn lessons from today. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I agree with you about his, his efforts to uh, move control back and more control back into the executive. One of the things about these presidents in general that struck me is how different the system was with the senators still being elected by the states. Um, the negotiations were far more complicated, I think, than, than they are now. Um, and the egos were certainly no smaller. So it's, uh, I think he showed great leadership in, in getting a fair amount done um, and also in keeping things from being done that shouldn't be done. And I guess we should say a word about his uh, his personal integrity. I know you touched on that in your opening, but I think he does get high marks for high personal integrity. Yeah, and uh, one of the things he said was that he uh, he said his task was to wipe out the color line, to abolish sectionalism, to end the war and bring peace. To do this, I was ready to resort to unusual measures and to risk my own standing and reputation within my party and the country. And he did. He, he didn't run for a second term, um, which I think was part of the compromise right. that he had agreed to, uh, to only serve one term. Um, and he lived up to that. Um, so, yeah, he was a man of great integrity, I think, um, which, is, which is very odd coming out of this time period. In general, though, I think the United States was lucky in the presidents we had there. Um, and I think Hayes is, Hayes is a good example of someone who's been unjustly uh, forgotten. I agree. On that note, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High, and we hope you join us next time. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.